Hey everyone, it's Andrew. I hope you enjoyed the last episode about the hypertension guideline update uh, with Dr. Eugene Yang. In today's episode, I'm visiting with Dr. Amber Kana from the University of Colorado. She is a specialist in adult congenital heart disease. For anyone who doesn't practice and, and research within that space, I feel like this topic can be overwhelming And when you see these patients, you just worry and fret that you're going to do the wrong thing and make sure you don't do them any harm. So we talked about some fairly simple lesions, ASDs and VSDs. I think it was a really great discussion. She elaborates a lot on her her practice style and the indications for closure uh, and much more. So I think you'll really enjoy it. As mentioned before, I've been recording heart sounds for tutorials on cardiac auscultation with the gracious support of Think Labs, the creators of a digital stethoscope. The Think Labs One digital stethoscope has the best in class sound quality and amplification, allowing for improved auscultation of hard to hear heart sounds. Use promo code APCardio19 now for $50 off your purchase at store.thinklabs.com. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Can I first have you say your name and your title for me? Sure. My name is Amber Kana. I'm an associate professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Great. And thank you for meeting with me today, Dr. Kana. Um, One of your areas of expertise is adult congenital heart disease, right? That is right. And how long have you been doing that? So I did uh, my fellowship in uh, adult cardiology and uh, adult congenital heart disease, and I finished that in 2011, so just over eight years. Great. So today I want to talk with you about two very common uh, conditions of adult congenital heart disease, ASDs and VSDs. So we'll jump right into it with uh, the first case. We have a 45-year-old woman, and she's referred to you for evaluation of new paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. On exam, she has a fixed S2 with a 1 out of 6 diastolic murmur at the left sternal border. Her EKG shows atrial fibrillation with a right axis deviation and an incomplete right bundle branch block. The transthoracic echo demonstrates a secundum ASD with a severely dilated right atrium and a moderately dilated right ventricle. My first question about this is, what additional diagnostics should be performed for her? It's a good question because there's not a clear answer. If you look at the adult congenital heart disease guidelines, it lists what diagnostics can be performed, but it doesn't really narrow it down or tell you which ones should be performed. There's Mm. things you need to accomplish with the workup. So the first step is, um, is to decide, are we sure about the diagnosis? Um, is it really secundum ASD? Are we missing any other lesions? About 10% of secundum ASDs are associated with partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. And uh, so you need to do testing to make sure that the patient does not have that, or if they do, it changes your management. So next step is to... Confirm the diagnoses. The next step is also to decide if the patient can and should undergo closure. 
Okay. So you, uh, you need to somehow make sure that closing this atrial septal defect will be safe. So my next step is usually a cardiac MRI. A cardiac MRI gives me anatomic detail of the ASD and can confirm if it's a secundum or another type of ASD. Mm-hmm. It will confirm the um, pulmonary veins and tell me that if there is or is not partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. It will show me the proximal coronary arteries. Um, this is not in the guidelines, but this is driven by my N of one patient who I sent for a, a percutaneous closure and missed the anomalous right coronary artery from the left coronary cusp. Mm-hmm. I don't, this is a common um, anomaly in ASDs, but it's one that I will not personally miss again. Gotcha. I see. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I, I, it's nice to know that they're coming off from the right cusp before you before you pursue an intervention. Um, and it will give you a QPQS. So a QP, we all know what Q is. Mm-hmm. Um, Q is flow. Q, Q is flow, right? Because we ordered VQ scans. So we know that if the V stands for ventilation, the QMS stands for flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a QPQS is the flow through the pulmonary vasculature compared to the flow through the systemic vasculature. Okay. So it... Normal QPQS should be exactly 1.1. There should be exactly the same amount of blood flow going to the lungs as going to the body. Mm-hmm. You have a left-to-right flow, meaning you now have more blood flow in your right circulation, in your pulmonary circulation. Mm-hmm. You have PQS that's greater than one. You have mm-hmm. more blood flow going to your lungs than your body. Surely there's like some amount of error for this like one, like give or take so many few. So then like... There is, but it's actually pretty minimal. So probably 5% or less. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So most, most of the time when the cath lab does a very careful QPQS calculation, it's usually between 0.95 and 1.05. Okay. So it's, it's pretty good. And the MRI is actually pretty good too that... If I, if I start to see a QPQS that's more than 10% away from one, then I, st- then I believe it. And I think that there may actually be a shunt there. Hmm. I see. Okay. So <laughs> kind of going back, we need to confirm the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And for you, that involves a cardiac MRI. So you're going to get anatomy, maybe a, a clearer picture of this ASD and where it is exactly within the, uh, within the septum, the inner atrial right. septum. And additionally, with that MRI, you're going to obtain more information about like anomalous pulmonary venous return because that sounds like it's a very common uh, condition associated with ASDs. Common enough. So with secundum ASDs, it's 10 to 15%. So not a guarantee. I mean, so probably not. Most patients don't have it, but it's a high enough percent that you need to look for it. Gotcha. For pulmonary veins, you... uh, it's very rare that you can see that kind of detail on an adult echocardiogram. Some pediatric echocardiograms, you can see all of the pulmonary veins. Um, on a TEE, you can see the you can see and count how many veins are draining into the left atrium, but you don't see the venous anatomy enough to know if maybe there's one more pulmonary vein that's draining high in the SVC. Got so it. I don't think a TEE 
is reliable enough to rule out anomalous veins. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And then once we've confirmed the diagnosis and screened for these other for this other condition, then getting a QPQS, which can be done through the MRI or through a cat, mm -hmm. this is then to be looking for indications for closure. Right. Okay. But just because you have a hole in your heart doesn't mean you need to have the hole in your heart closed. Um, we have lots of patients walking around with holes and they do just fine. Uh -huh. So there is a question about who should have their ASD closed. Yeah, exactly. And let's go right there. Yeah. Okay. So if it's causing problems, you should have it closed. So the kinds of problems that it can cause, if, if we think it's really causing symptoms, it should be closed. But symptoms are very hard to, hard to sort out because I see a lot of patients who come in with shortness of breath. Well, they've had the hole their whole life. Why is it now causing shortness of breath? Is it really the hole that's causing the shortness of breath? Sure. Trying to piece that out is very difficult. So we end up using a lot of other evidence. So if the hole is big enough and the QPQS is high enough that the right heart is now dilated, then we should probably close the hole. So uh, that's, sort of the, that's sort of the easy answer. If the right heart is starting to show signs of stress from this hole in the heart, we should close the hole in the heart. Mm. Um, atrial arrhythmias are a tricky one. So in general, if somebody has an atrial arrhythmia, it implies that there's stress in the heart. Mm -hmm. Close the hole, that won't change the long-term risk of recurrence of atrial fibrillation. So we know that if we close holes in, if we close ASDs in young people, we prevent the risk of atrial fibrillation. If somebody has already developed atrial fibrillation, we can't go back and fix that. If somebody has a large ASD and they reach the age of 40 or so and it hasn't been closed, they have already assumed that risk of atrial fibrillation and it probably isn't as helpful going down the line to close it to prevent, for the sole purpose of preventing atrial fibrillation. Interesting. So it's like there's this uh, concept that you have, uh, you're having a lot of left to right flow um, in your heart and then at some point you've, you've crossed a threshold at which you're you're almost guaranteed to develop atrial fibrillation or maybe not guaranteed but your modifiable risk of developing a atrial fibrillation uh is no longer modifiable like we Correct. reduce this hole to modify that risk yeah you have assumed that risk it's now there um neither it, it's going to happen or it's not going to happen but closing the asd probably won't make that much of a difference Interesting. Okay. So like for our patient, you know, she's 45 and having atrial fibrillation at this point, we're not going to fix her atrial fibrillation just by closing it. Absolutely but, not. But she has a moderately dilated right ventricle. That may be an indication to proceed. Yes. Yeah. So she probably has a high enough QPQS. Some people use 1.5 as a cutoff. So 50% more blood flow going to the lungs than the body. Um, they go together. So if you have a high QPQS, you should see the right side start to dilate. If the right side is dilated, you should have a high QPQS. Like they, they go hand in hand up until you get significant pulmonary hypertension, which I think we'll talk about in a few minutes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so they should go together. And we always pause if we see one of them out of proportion to the other one. 
So a really big RV and a QPQS that's not that high should make you think about what's going on. Same thing, like if you have a really high QPQS and the RV is normal size, you have to just think about how, how could that have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that she needs that evaluation. Given her age, she probably needs a cardiac catheterization to actually measure the pressures in her lungs. Sometimes in young people, so in kids, they don't always do it. And then in some of our young adults, where we have a clear TR and we clearly see the, the degree of tri- the pulmon- we can estimate the pulmonary pressures fairly well on that. Uh-huh. And uh, the MRI is confirming a high QPQS. And the patient has normal oxygenation at rest and with exercise. If they meet all of those criteria, we won't always do a, a diagnostic cardiac cath before closure. Got it. Okay. Understood. Because, okay, because we have reliable information from the echo. Yeah. The, yeah. the combination of the echo, the oxygen saturation, and the MRI, we mm-hmm. can get there to feel comfortable that we're not missing severe pulmonary hypertension. Gotcha. Okay. So let's go down this road of say she does have concomitant pulmonary hypertension. You know, this is probably a common scenario, particularly, you know, in young, younger women Mm -hmm. having a, an ASD of some size Mm -hmm. and then also showing up with pulmonary hypertension and their right ventricle is dilated. How do you tease out the differences of and maybe their QPQS, you know, is kind of borderline, like 1.4, 1.5 right there on the cusp. And how do you know which way this person shakes out? So it's, it, it ends up being very tricky. And the first thing you need is a very meticulous, careful cardiac catheterization. Hmm. This isn't the interventional cardiologist that can throw a stent in in 20 minutes running a quick grabbing two sats and getting out of there and trying to do the calculations. This is measuring saturations in the SVC and the IVC and the multiple points within the right atrium, right ventricle, pulmonary artery. It's crossing the septum, getting true pulmonary vein saturations, getting arterial saturations. Um, It is a meticulous cardiac catheterization. Uh, Because... So if we go back to our basic hemodynamics, cardiac hemodynamics a bit, the more flow you have moving through a system, the higher the pressure is going to be. Mm-hmm. We don't really care what the pressure in the lungs is. We care about the resistance in the lungs. Mm-hmm. But you can have a scenario where the pressure is high, the, the flow is high, and your resistance is actually pretty normal. Mm-hmm. In this case, please close the hole. As soon as you close the ASD, you drop the flow and the pulmonary pressures will drop nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not Eisenmenger syndrome. That is just normal hemodynamics um, and something we see. So you calculate a very high QPQS, three, maybe even four. Hmm. So you have 10 liters of flow going through the lungs. Yeah, the pressure is going to be higher. Yeah. Um, but your resistance, when you go through all of the math again, the resistance can come out to be very reassuring. Um, and these patients do very well with ASD closure. Hmm. I guess I'm surprised that, I mean, so presumably these people are living with an ASD for decades and mm-hmm. having high flows for decades. 
Right. There's no pulmonary vascular remodeling in that time period to then create resistance. I guess that, that, seems, that seems odd to me that that can actually be the case. Right. Um, uh, more, it happens more often in men. So women are more likely to have the, the pulmonary vascular remodeling and the increase in the resistance. Hmm. Uh, so there, there's probably some controversy if true Eisenmenger syndrome exists with just ASDs. So some people will argue that every time you see an ASD with true fixed increased resistance, fixed pulmonary hypertension, pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension, everything looks like Eisenmenger syndrome. If the only family is an ASD, maybe you found the person that has primary pH and an ASD. Hmm. It's so It just doesn't happen that often. Yeah. Some moderate pulmonary hypertension happens, but the true Eisenmenger syndrome does not happen very often. Yeah. And I haven't done the... Uh, the advanced statistics on the prevalence of primary pulmonary hypertension and the prevalence of ASDs. But you would expect that those two conditions, we see both of them all the time in clinic, mm -hmm. in our to referral centers, but we see them, yeah. uh, that it certainly makes sense that it could happen together. Gotcha. On occasion. They're just, ex they would just be exceedingly rare to have that happen. Right. Um, so the pulmonary hypertension, most people think it's a, it's at least a two-hit hypothesis. So you need increased flow and something else. We certainly see pulmonary hypertension in our high pressure, high, high flow shunts. Okay, so we see pulmonary hypertension in our high pressure, high flow shunts, such as VSDs and PDAs. Mm -hmm you have those it's not just flow so when you're above the tricuspid valve you only have flow you don't have extra pressure pushing the blood through mm -hmm. VSDs and a big VSD and a big PDA has a lot of flow and a lot of pressure and will almost always cause Isomega syndrome if not repaired got it ASD you can live with your entire life and have a high QPQS and not necessarily develop the pulmonary hypertension Gotcha. And that's in part so where right? maybe the, the pressure difference. We're going to have the right. flow, but the difference here is now the pressure difference. Yeah. So now we just have flow. So you take somebody who just has flow and you give them either some degree of genetic predisposition or another hit on the lungs from, you know, maybe they, maybe they have some other cause of pulmonary hypertension. They took some medicines or they did drugs, mm -hmm. thing that was the, the second hit, mm -hmm. um, and that was enough with the shunt to cause it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Now, let's come back to our case a little bit. We discussed about, um, uh, about some of these other issues in, and uh, like possibly with pulmonary hypertension and that, and Eisenmenger syndrome and ASDs. Let's circle back kind of the, the big question that everyone will wonder about is whether it should be closed or not. Right. So let's say she does have a flow of greater than one and a half. How mm -hmm. do we close it? Let's say, sorry, let me rephrase this. There's an indication for closure for her. 
And let's rephrase, let's talk about the methods in which closure uh, can be done. There's percutaneous options and then there's surgical options. And which one would be preferred for her, you know, young 45 year old woman? So if I told you that you could have a procedure where you're in the hospital, in that you come in for the cath lab, you're in the hospital overnight, you go home the next day and you're back to work in a few days, or we can do a procedure where we saw open your sternum and uh, stop your heart and uh, sew a hole closed. And then we, uh, you're in the hospital for a week and you're out of work for six weeks. What do you prefer? Right? So that question is easy. Mm -hmm. People prefer the percutaneous. So we recommend percutaneous options if possible. So we, that's sort of our, that is our go-to that we should do a percutaneous if we can do a percutaneous. And so the question clear. really is who can have, who can have this easier recovery kind of procedure? Yeah. Because most of us would, most of us in adult congenital heart disease really feel that the long-term effects of both of them are very effective. So there's equipoise between them. It's not like, if you have it surgically closed, it'll really be closed and it's better. So there's really no long-term benefit to, to either option. I was going to ask that question about the durability. So they're the yeah, same. No, okay. they're the, they, they are the same. So it's really about short-term um, and the recovery period that's different. Um, so who can have it percutaneously closed? The first is what we already talked about. So you can't have other problems with your heart that need to be fixed. So if you have anomalous pulmonary veins, or if you have a mitral valve that's moderately leaking or more, or if you have some degree of aortic stenosis and we really should do something about the aortic valve, if you have something else wrong with your heart, then we should really just do surgery and fix whatever is there that needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, you have to have only a secundum ASD. So why secundum? Well, only secundum because we need rims to anchor a percutaneous device to. Mm -hmm. Percutaneous devices are like two plates or two frisbees that, that are anchored in between the septum and they hold position there and the device is released and it stays in the heart forever. So these two uh, plates have to hold on to something. So there needs to be a rim of tissue around almost the entire hole for the plates to hold on to so that they don't become dislodged um, after, the, after it's been released. So you need to measure the rims. Some people will do a TEE, which probably gives us the best measurement of the rims. Mm -hmm. Some people will look on the MRI and see if the rims look good enough on the MRI and then do a TEE when they're doing the procedure just to confirm. If there's any doubt, you end up having to do a TEE to actually measure, measure these rims going around it. But other types of ASDs, they don't have rims adequately for us to anchor a device. Mm. So it's a primum ASD, it's a sinuspinosis ASD, those are all surgically repaired. Gotcha. Because so, those areas, those two ASDs you mentioned, the um, primum ASDs and then the uh, sinus venosus ASD, these are off to the, basically, you can think about off to the sides of the septum where there's not really a lot of extra septal tissue around it, unlike the secundum ASDs that are kind of 
one way to think of it is that they're in the middle sort of of the of the of the septal tissue so there's usually places for these discs to latch onto and and, uh, and clamp on yes exactly okay you need to have suitable anatomy for a percutaneous closure gotcha so it becomes maybe more of a technical issue of whether you can do the percutaneous option rather than indications for durability of options. It becomes a technical consideration at this point. Yes. Some secundum ASDs are so large that even though they're a secundum ASD, there's not adequate rims. There's not enough tissue surrounding the hole. It almost becomes like a common atria, that there's just one massive hole in the middle. Gotcha. Okay. Now, one question we skipped over, I forgot, is for this patient or for all patients with ASDs, how likely is it that they have a genetic cause causing their ASD? Frequently, we think of patients with congenital heart disease, maybe not frequently, but sometimes these, con- these conditions are associated with you know, genetic mutations. So should we be concerned about that for someone with an ASD? Um, the vast majority of ASDs do not have a genetic component. I would start asking questions if there was a family history. So if they say, oh yeah, my mom had that and my sister had that. Um, There are some autosomal dominant forms of ASDs. Um, There are a lot of genetic conditions that have pretty, or syndromes that have pretty significant physiologic findings that when we see the syndrome, we look for congenital heart disease. Um, So, uh, it's a little bit of a backwards question that if you have one of, if you have an obvious genetic syndrome, we oftentimes are looking for the congenital heart disease, but when we find it a secundum ASD, we don't really look for it. Gotcha. Um, ASDs are on the spectrum of canal type defects that used to be called endocushion cardi- endocardial cushion defects. Mm-hmm. A true endocardial cushion defect is an ASD and a VSD right in the middle of the heart. That is strongly associated with Down syndrome. Um, Primum ASDs alone without the ventricular septal defect portion of it are not necessarily associated with Down syndrome. So there are a lot of neurotypical, genetically normal people with Primum ASDs. And I, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for genetic syndromes or things that I think may be a red flag for it, but Mm -hmm. an ASD alone would not be a red flag for it. Gotcha. Um, Got it. Okay. Interesting. Now let's flip the conversation. We talked about um, different options for closure, surgical versus percutaneous. What if we don't need to close her ASD? Let's say, you know, the flow is less than you know, the QPQS flow ratio is less than 1.5. And let's say, you know, her right ventricle actually wasn't like dilated. Maybe her right atrium is just a little dilated. You know, what sort of follow-up would be indicated for her? I think, I think it depends. If the right atrium is a little bit dilated and her QPQS is 1.4, I would follow her. I'd follow her again in a year to make sure that things aren't rapidly changing. And then I always follow every, probably every two or three years to make sure things are looking okay. Hmm. If it's really a tiny hole, you know, we're talking two or three millimeters and everything looks absolutely perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. 
you could say, come back if you have problems. I'm pretty bad about doing that. I almost, I almost tell everybody to come back, but it would be like a five-year kind of thing. Gotcha. Let's just take a peek at this again in five years, see what it looks like. Got it. Okay. Now, let's say we release her into the wild, say, well, <laughs> come back, you know, in one or two years sort of thing. Uh, does she need to take antibiotic prophylaxis for any dental work? So no, so uh, ASD alone is not an indication for antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, if she were to develop Eisenmenger syndrome and was cyanosed, you could consider it based on the cyanotic congenital heart disease. If she uh, gets percutaneously closed and now has foreign material in her heart, she should be on antibiotic prophylaxis for six months after the procedure is done. Not daily for six months, but prior to dental work, if she were to have dental work in the six months after her after her closure implanted. Yes. Got it. Okay. I think so. I had one patient who uh, nearly fit this picture. She was a bit younger, and uh, she basically said, "No, I feel fine. I don't want it closed." So that's a bit of a different situation where I said, "I think you should have your ASD closed," and she said, "No, thank you." Okay. Uh, we followed, her, we followed her every year with echocardiograms. We did exercise tests and we watched, we watched her a lot more carefully because she actually did have indications for closure. Mm -hmm. I think I followed her for three or four years and she, her ASD was too large for closure. So she underwent surgical closure um, just three or four months ago and is doing really well. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Now, Wrapping up, I think that's most of my questions about ASDs and for this case. But I also know that for sometimes it gets confusing when we're talking about PFOs, parietal foramen ovales, and then ASDs. So could you just explain, like, fundamentally, like, what are the difference between these two defects? That's a great question. So a PFO is a flap in the atrium that if the pressure is right, it opens up. And if the pressure between the left atrium and the right atrium changes, it closes again. 100% of people have a PFO on the day that they're born. PFOs are necessary for intrauterine fetal circulation. 80% mm -hmm. of the time that tissue seals shut, closes and seals shut tight. 20% of the time it doesn't. So 20% of the population is walking around with a patent foramen ovale, meaning that if the pressure changes such, that flap will open up and allow some blood to cross between the, between the chambers. Mm -hmm. It is not generally thought to be ever enough blood to cause chamber enlargement of either the left side or the right side of chambers. Um, and it is definitely not something that we close because it's there. We would be doing it, these device closures in 20% of the population if that was the case. Most people believe that PFOs are associated with stroke, particularly stroke in young people without any other good reason to have a stroke. Yeah. So in select populations, very select populations, we will close a PFO to prevent a recurrent stroke. Mm -hmm. We are working on how to find the patients that actually will benefit from this being done. Um, and I don't think we've totally refined those guidelines yet. Sure. Yes. I know there's been a lot of research and there's 
arguments on both sides of the case, on both sides of the fence right now regarding PFO closures. Right. Um, I, my biggest recommendation is that if you have somebody who has a stroke and they have a PFO, send them to a multidisciplinary PFO stroke clinic. Have them being seen by a cardiologist that closes PFOs and a neurologist that's familiar with the data and the research regarding um, PFOs and embolic strokes. Um, good PFO clinics, they sit, those two physicians will sit side by side and see patients together. Hmm. So that would be, you know, if it were a family member, that would be my, my recommendation is go to the experts. Gotcha. Cool. I didn't know those existed. Nice. Mm -hmm. um, I think that wraps it up. Should we move on to our second case? Yeah, I think so. One last piece that mm -hmm. somebody has severe pulmonary hypertension. So whether they have an ASD and an Eisermanger syndrome or they have primary pH and a decent sized ASD, we don't close the hole. So if there is still, if, if there's a hole and the QPQS is sort of in that one range, mm -hmm. close it, the patients struggle. So oftentimes, once you develop severe pulmonary hypertension, that hole acts like a pop-off valve for the right ventricle. So it allows the right ventricle and a smaller amount of blood flow so it doesn't have to deal with the full with the full circulation and allows some blood to cross over to the LV so that even though not enough blood is coming through the lungs, it's getting adequate um, preload from the PFO. Mm -hmm. So patients will do very poorly if you suddenly close their PFO. The right heart fails because it now has to deal with the total circulation of the body and cardiac output drops because there's no blood actually making it to the left ventricle. Gotcha. There are some studies and some clinical experience where in patients with primary pH, we create holes in the heart. To, so a small um, ASD to try to offload the right ventricle and get enough blood flow to the left ventricle. Hmm. But just because it's not, that we sh it's not that we don't think it will help, it will actually harm the patient. So we don't do it. Gotcha. So maybe another way of saying that is that there's a point at which the right ventricle can be so strained and so overwhelmed. That's what this severe pulmonary hypertension would be like. And this is what Eisenmenger syndrome looks like. Yeah. We've gone too far to think about closure and that's really keeping the right ventricle happy. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So our second case is a, a 30 year old man. This, uh, he comes to an internist to establish care. He hadn't seen a physician in many years, like since he was a child, like probably most 30-year-old men in our country. Right. So he was told that he had a hole in his heart, and his wife told him that he needed to come into the doctor to make sure it was okay. So when you examine him, there's a loud, harsh, holosystolic murmur at the, low at the lower left sternal border. You order an echocardiogram, and it demonstrates a VSD in the membranous portion near the tricuspid valve. Near tri yeah, tricuspid leaflet. So same first question for him, what additional diagnostics should be performed to evaluate his VSD? So again, a very common situation. This happens all the time. I see patients just like this in my clinic regularly. Um, it is always the wife that tells them that they should go get it checked out. <laughs> so yeah. that, that, is, that is exactly what happens. Um, I am very reassured by how loud his murmur is. So, uh, hmm. 
all holes make a lot of noise. So the fact that this is still a very loud murmur implies that it is still a very small hole and is probably not causing problems. Most VSDs that can and should be closed have it done in childhood. So it's, un it's people don't miss VSDs in babies. They make a ton of noise. Parents come in and say, why is the chest vibrating with every heartbeat? Um, VSDs are picked up in childhood in developed countries with adequate access to medical care. Um, so, so they're picked up in kids, they're diagnosed, and they're treated if they need to be treated. So if the VSD is small, oftentimes they won't be closed because it's just a, it's making a lot of noise, but it's not that hemodynamically significant. Mm -hmm. um, if it's making a lot of noise in a kid and it's a, a good sized hole, then they'll close it when they're a kid. So by the time you reach adulthood, it's rare, not, it's not an absolute, but it's rare to find a VSD that should be closed based on its size. Gotcha. Um, just usually to, we can, yeah, I'm go sorry. ahead. To explore that, uh, that concept of the, the small hole being loud, this is because there's a large pressure difference between the left ventricle and the right ventricle. And so we have a high velocity across this area creating turbulent flow. And that's what you're hearing when you're auscultating. Yeah, it's like the end of a garden hose. As you start to put your thumb over the end of it, it the velocity of the blood, uh, the water gets faster and faster. Um, mm -hmm. gets louder and louder until you finally seal it off. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so usually with patients like this, I can get a transthoracic echo, see that the left ventricle, left atrium are normal size, measure a high velocity flow across the VSD, look at the valve function, make sure the tricuspid valve is still working fine, that it hasn't been damaged at all. Mm -hmm. Look at the aortic valve, make sure that the aortic leaflets haven't been sucked into the jet of the VSD, um, and uh, follow based on that. So I, we can get reassuring enough information from an echocardiogram that we don't necessarily have to do more testing. If we're on the fence, if the left atrium looks a little bit big, if the hole just looks a little bigger than I was expecting, then we can do uh, a cardiac MRI again and get more information about the size of the ventricles and the QPQS. Gotcha. Can these, you say the, usually they're, they're picked up as, as children and then like the ones that need to be treated. How, I mean, is it possible that there's a child who then has a VSD but then it has expanded like throughout their life because our hearts are growing, you know, from some size from a child. Mm -hmm. um, and does that hole also possibly enlarge when this person's maturing? It usually doesn't. So the, usually if anything gets a little bit smaller, um, as the muscle grows more and sort of fills in, if there's a muscular component to it at all, the muscle will, will fill in that. So it would be uncommon for, the shunt to get large to, to get larger as patients get older. Gotcha. Okay. What are the types of patients who present to you with VSDs who need closure? Since you're saying most of these patients should have been picked, or most of them probably would have been picked up as an infant. Right. So they don't need to be closed usually because of the size of the VSD or because of the size of the shunt. The ones that need to be closed are closed for another reason. So the other reasons are progressive valve dysfunction. 
So if the tricuspid valve is starting to get damaged or the aortic valve is starting to get damaged, it's better to go in, close the VSD and save the valve than to wait for the valve to be destroyed and have to do a valve replacement. I would rather operate to close a hole than to replace a valve because of long-term prognosis. Mm-hmm. So see the valves are starting to get damaged. There's something called a double chambered right ventricle, um, which is uncommon, but it can happen. And it's one of the reasons that we do need to follow these VSD patients. So if that jet of flow from the left ventricle to the right ventricle hits the wall of the right ventricle, you can start to get muscular hypertrophy at that site. Mm. The muscular hypertrophy from the jet of flow can actually cause RV outflow obstruction. And then it starts to behave a little bit like hokum on the left side, but it's on the right side. Oh, interesting. So you can get... So the double chambers are on one side of the obstruction and the other side of the obstruction within the right ventricle. Uh You can get significant enough flow across there that you have symptoms um, and uh, the right ventricle won't tolerate that forever. So you watch to see how fast that flow is crossing within the obstruction within the right ventricle. And if it gets high enough, then you go and you do surgery. You close the VSD and often have to do some muscular resection within the right ventricle. Like a myectomy. A myectomy, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The final indication for VSD closure is endocarditis. So there's tissue around the VSD. If that ever gets infected, uh, we recommend closing the VSD to prevent recurrent episodes of endocarditis. Um, What about like any types of like endocarditis, like say IV drug user, right-sided tricuspid valve endocarditis. Does their VSD need to be closed? Probably. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's, it, it definitely if you're in there anyway, right? If, you are, if, if they are getting a tricuspid valve replacement, you should close a VSD. And honestly, if anybody were, if anybody were having another heart surgery and they had a VSD, we would probably recommend that they try to close it. Got it. Well, or sometimes... So VSDs are really easy to see on echocardiograms when the heart is full of blood and there's this big, bright jet flow going across. Mm-hmm. In the operating room, they're actually much more difficult to find. So now there's no blood in the heart. The ventricles are very trabeculated. So you have all of these little crevices wow. and it's difficult to find the one crevice that crosses over into the other ventricle. So surgeons do the best they can, but it is... There are some patients that had, had a VSD closed and they still have a small residual VSD. Actually, it's, it's fairly common just given how it's hard to get 100% closure of a VSD. Gotcha. Are there any percutaneous options for closure in VSDs? Um, uh, there are, I don't believe there are any FDA-approved options. They do some in Europe. Um, uh, no, we do, we do muscular VSDs, but those are more often done in kids, most adults don't have muscular VSDs anymore. They've either closed or they've had them closed. Yeah. Uh, post-infarct VSDs, we close those. But like this patient has a perimembranous or membranous VSDs. We don't have perimembranous or membranous VSD closure devices in America. Um, the studies where they where they've done them have been associated with a high risk of heart block because the conductive tissue goes 
right next to where the VSD is. Okay. So now we talk to a patient and we can say, well, we can do surgery. It's six weeks recovery, but your conduction system will work. Or we can do a percutaneous and you will be dependent on a pacemaker the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden that surgery doesn't sound like such <laughs> an option anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, with ASDs, you had mentioned that there can be a point with severe enough pulmonary hypertension, you don't want to close them. Right. Can the same situation occur with VSDs? Yes. For a big VSD, it probably happens by about two years of age. So if it's a big, a big VSD, most of them will develop permanent pulmonary hypertension as a mechanism of protecting the lungs because otherwise you're over-circulating with high-velocity flow that it has to clamp down, and it has to clamp down so well that you develop pulmonary hypertension. The vascular remodeling happens. Usually, too, it's actually probably by about one in patients with Down syndrome. Um, if they don't have Down syndrome, you have a little bit more time to fix a big VSD. Gotcha. Okay. Now, if our patient does not need closure, mm -hmm. what should his follow-up look like? So, honestly, we should probably look every five years. So, I tell patients two to three <laughs> because okay. they come back in five. <laughs> Got it. So we should periodically look. We should look at the valves and make sure that the valves aren't starting to deteriorate. Make sure that there isn't hypertrophy of the right ventricle wall. Um, yeah, we should, we should look because we can, we can catch things in which there's an intervention that is better than if we didn't catch it. Other thoughts about VSDs? There's always a question is, it's just a simple VSD. A general cardiologist can take care of this. I think if a, cardi if, if a general cardiologist is familiar with VSDs, is familiar with these long-term complications, then yes, that's fine. What, I, what makes me uncomfortable is when a general cardiologist says, oh, it's just a small VSD, goodbye, you'll do fine, call me if you have any problems. Mm -hmm. As long as the general cardiologists are following the guidelines and know what to look out for, um, then I think it's fine. Otherwise, most of my colleagues, adult congenital cardiologists, we are more than happy to see these patients, provide guidelines, recommend long-term follow-up options, and see these patients. Because of that, I think that all patients with a VSD should see an adult congenital cardiologist at least once to make sure there's nothing mixed missed and to get a long-term follow-up plan. Got it. Okay. Now, as kind of a wrap-up, do you have any resources for further learning or understanding that you might be able to recommend? So in 2018, the ACC AHA um, published guidelines for the management of adults with congenital heart disease. Mm -hmm. So it really goes through each lesion and uh, tells you what follow-up should be, how we're going to classify patients, what testing is indicated, what to do in the unrepaired patient, what to do in the repaired patient, very systematically goes through everything. So if you're taking care of these patients, it's a, it's a great resource for, follow, for knowing what appropriate care really is. Got it. For patients, the uh, ACHA, the Adult Congenital Heart Association, is a very good resource as well. So I send my patients to the website 
Um, they have conferences. It's a great patient resource for meeting other people that have similar problems to them. Mm -hmm. And especially around the time of surgery, talking to other people who have been through heart surgery, what it's like, what kind of complications they can have. It's mm -hmm. just a really good resource for patients. Got it. Cool. That's the ACHA. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for visiting with me and letting me chat with you. Um, I learned a lot and I think uh, other people will as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. To summarize a few of the main points, in patients with an ASD, a cardiac MRI is a useful test because it can better define the anatomy of the ASD and additionally can look for other conditions that may coexist, such as anomalous pulmonary veins. The closure for ASDs should be considered if the patient is symptomatic from them and when the QPQS is greater than 1.5. In other words, when the flow through the pulmonary system is 50% greater than that through the systemic system. For patients with a VSD, small VSDs uh, can just be followed and monitored clinically uh, for long periods of time. If they've had endocarditis, the VSD should probably be closed. And in both sets of patients with ASDs or VSDs, patients with severe pulmonary hypertension or Eisermenger syndrome with right to left shunts, these uh, defects probably should not be closed as they are a type of a pop-off valve for the pressures and the heart could fail when closure of those valves. I hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on medpagetoday.com. This episode is also sponsored in part by Think Labs, the creators of, a, of the Think Labs One digital stethoscope. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl from their album.